Hello. Good morning. Good morning. So I'm teaching the big kids today. <laughs> so my name is Justin, and I usually am in the back with the children's ministry. So today I get the opportunity to be here, so I'm really glad to be here. If you are a veteran, please stand up. just want to say thank you. Thank you, guys. And, you know, families, uh, we know Alex, young Alex is uh, being trained right now. And so that, that takes a special person, special dedication. And I think one of the main things that I remember is because of the veterans, because of those who are protecting us, we have an open opportunity to share the gospel. That's not happening everywhere, as you know. So I think that's really special that we have a place we can do that. We can meet freely here today. So the veterans, those who serve, provide this opportunity in a way. So thank you. So I want to talk today about Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet. We call him one of the major prophets because the book of Isaiah is quite long. But Isaiah was a prophet to the northern and southern uh, Israel, the tribes, during a time of great apostasy, a turning away from God, a time of idol worship, prostitution, pride, arrogance, and much of Isaiah's message was a pronouncement of judgment, of the coming judgment of God. So it's not always, maybe it maybe wasn't always an easy message for him, but he delivered this message, and part of that message I want to go over today, because when I look around, maybe you can see that too, our culture, the time we live in is becoming more and more like the time or the times in the past when Isaiah was preaching, and, and, and we see that. And so I want to talk about chapter 64 and some of chapter 63, but these, this chapter is a prayer. And I think when we start to see the times around us, things around us going from bad to worse, it is a time to pray. And in fact, uh, this was Isaiah's heart. And so I think we can learn a lot from that, from this prayer. We see an, an acknowledgement of who God is. Always a great place to start in prayer. We see a repentance from sin, even from Isaiah's mouth. And we see a surrender to the sovereignty and the purposes of God. So the theme, as one commentator put of this section, is God's control in the universe is recognized and man's condition in the universe is confessed. So let's... Take a look, because I think this is a great example of how to approach God in prayer in our day and age. So let's read. I want to start with chapter 63, verse 7. I just want to read that verse and then go on. I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness Toward the house of Israel, 
which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindness. Let's flip ahead to chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence, as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you, who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses, righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. And all we are the work of your hand. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we all are your people. Your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? Let's pray. Lord, this is your word and I pray your word would do its work in our heart, Lord, to humble us, to correct us, to encourage us, rebuke us, Train us in righteousness and that we would leave this place changed. Uh, God, we surrender our hearts to you today. Open us up, Lord, to just hear uh, from your Holy Spirit. Lord, I do pray that you would, uh, by your Holy Spirit, give a special message to each one of us, the, the thing we need to hear and take away from this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So... Starting in Isaiah 63, and when you start in prayer, it's always a very good idea to start with praise. So Isaiah praises God for his loving kindness and faithfulness in the past. In fact, God was very good to Israel. He's not a great big mean God up there, just waiting to strike all those who cross him. But in fact, he is very loving and kind to us. But Israel forgot what God had done for them in his deliverance. And they had turned to idols. They had turned to worshiping the gods who couldn't save. So I think it's very important to remember, God's not, you know, the bad guy here. In fact, he, he is the one who has done great and mighty things for us and on our behalf. So Isaiah in 64 turns to a cry for God's help, his intervention. And I see in verse 1 through 3, the, the Lord's, the presence of God is mentioned three times. When God shows up, things change. And so he's pleading for God to come down. And God's presence is mighty and powerful. It causes things to be shaken up a little bit. 
And this is a prophecy with a future fulfillment. And it's also something that can apply right now. So we see there, he says that the nations may tremble. Now, we don't really see that right now. Nations aren't necessarily trembling at the Lord's presence. So that's pointing to something that's going to happen in the future. Someday, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Ezekiel 38, you don't have to turn there. We're going to bounce around, so you can just stay in Isaiah. Ezekiel 38 talks about when the nations will rise up against Israel, then Jesus will come, he'll show up. And this is a parallel passage. It says in chapter 38, verse 19, For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken, surely in that day there will be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the fields, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. It goes on to the end, end of that section. And I will be known in the eyes of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord. So the Lord is coming. He will come in a powerful way. And so we can apply this to our lives in Revelation twenty two twenty. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We see the landscape and we're thinking, come, come, Lord, please. This, How long can we go on like this? So we are waiting, as it goes on to say. But while we're waiting, we can apply this to our lives. Is the presence of God in your life in experience? We know that God is outside of time. He's outside of our four-dimensional reality. He's not stuck in heaven, and we're stuck down here. He is, he is everywhere. His presence, He's omnipresent. So are you realizing this presence in your life? As Patrick talked about last week, is his presence perfecting you, making you more mature like Christ? So we can apply this. I, I you know, sometimes when the Lord shows up in my life, it's, it's with conviction. You can't continue doing the things you're doing sometimes, right? When the Lord is there as well, he convicts you, he challenges you. And that's a good thing. So let's go on to verse 4. So that's the first section. So this is a future fulfillment. Also, we can apply this to us. So, and then verse 4, it says, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you, who acts for the one who waits for him. What's the news? There is no news under the sun that's really new or news. Since the beginning of time, man, people, have had this problem of setting up idols, putting things before God. No one has seen anything like anyone like God. No one can help like God can. So idolatry is an age-old problem. And Israel was in that place. No God can act. So if we look at Jeremiah 10, again, you don't have to turn this, fine. Jeremiah was also a prophet who 
spoke out against the inability of the idols of the time to deliver the people. So he says, so this is what we do with our idols. Makes absolutely no sense. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They are upright like a palm tree and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. So these idols cannot save. They cannot act. So we go on. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. But the living, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. So he is living. So in fact, God actually can act on our behalf. It is possible for God to act. These idols that Israel is worshiping, that we worship in our lives, things that we trust in, rely, rely upon, hope in, they can't save us. So what makes God so great? Because it says, no eye has seen any God besides you. Why is he great? Well, we talked about his omnipresence. He's everywhere. He's a living God. He's not dead. He's alive. He conquered death. He's omniscient. He knows the beginning and the end. So he knows the circumstances we're going through. He knows the beginning. He knows the end. So he can act exactly how he needs to act in the situation to do exactly what he needs to do to fulfill his purpose. Now, also in this context of waiting, we are still waiting for a future event. We're waiting for heaven. And we can get a little impatient with that. So we're still waiting for heaven. We're still waiting for God to set it right. And this waiting also has to do with work in our own, the works of God in our own life. So why is waiting so difficult for us? In my house, we share one bathroom with four girl, four, five girls, my wife included, my son, and myself. So that's really annoying to wait for the bathroom, especially when I have somewhere to go. I have to be somewhere. I'm important. I have a job. I got to go to my job. So I don't like waiting in line. I'm impatient. So that's what we do. We often are impatient. So waiting, there's a form of, of trust and faith involved. So what, waiting says, I believe God is at work, and he doesn't need my help. That he, he'll accomplish it in his time. I'm not striving to make it happen. And, and waiting remains faithful to what we're supposed to do even when it seems like God has forgotten. Sometimes that takes a long time. So some biblical examples of waiting, I mean, look at Joseph, forgotten in prison. But he was faithful during that time, and God raised him up. And in due time, when it was his time, God acted, God delivered him. Look at Daniel. Now, I really can relate to Daniel because Daniel was a servant of God to the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, in the court of the king. He was taken as a young man out of his home in Israel. He was basically a slave, and he was forced to work in, the, in King Nebuchadnezzar's court. So what's interesting about Daniel is, you know, because I struggle with this, 
with Christian service. I, I want to, you know, I just want to serve God. I want to go on the mission field. I want to do all these big, exciting things for God. And then I look at Daniel, and I'm like, he wasn't a missionary. He was a slave. He had no choice. He was stuck. He was trapped. But what's interesting is through his faithfulness, through his waiting, through his prayer, through his, uh, God showed him great wisdom and um, support and help and grace. Through that process, Nebuchadnezzar actually sent out a proclamation to all the known world exalting God and the king, uh, and, and God in heaven, that he was the king of all the earth, that no, there's no God like Daniel's God. And, and so these proclamations went out to all the known world. So in a way, Daniel was the biggest missionary possible. And I'm sure it was, maybe he didn't see that at the time. And I don't always see that in my job. I, right now I work, I'm a teacher at, I work at Winman where our church used to meet, which is kind of funny. Uh, so I work at Winman in special ed, and I've been bounced around in my career, and I really struggle with this, but God always brings me back to Daniel. So, you know, just be like Daniel. You know, serve God in the midst of that difficult situation. You might not know what kind of work he's doing behind the scenes. There are a thousand, there are a thousand kids in that building uh, from 6th, 7th, 8th grade, 1,000 kids, a lot of kids. So God, I don't know, you know, what, what, what does he have in store? So through prayer, through being faithful to do my job, who knows what God is going to do to act on my behalf? I don't know. And I, I don't know, who knows? I might not be there forever. But I'm just really encouraged by that because I don't like to wait. I want it to be all fixed, all right. Right now I want my job to be perfect. I want it to be comfortable and easy but it's not. So how about some other examples? David waiting to be king for many, many years, fleeing for his life. How about Jesus? He led a quiet life. We don't hear much about him for the first 30 years. They had three obviously powerful years of ministry. How about the Israelites being delivered? Waiting for Moses, their deliverer, who, in fact, is an example of both. He's an example of waiting and not waiting. In the beginning, he killed the Egyptian leader, impatient, right? He just killed him, tried to bury him in the sand. He was discovered, had to flee for 40 years. He, he waited with Jethro's flock. He was faithful there. Some other non-examples. How about Abraham and Ishmael? God's promise was to Abraham to provide a nation, Abraham didn't wait. He had Ishmael through Hagar, okay, not through Sarah, the promised line. So he tried to fix it or tried to do it in his own flesh. And that's what we often do. So a lot of examples and non-examples, but God is at work. He acts for the one who waits for him. We might not ever see what he's doing until we get to heaven. We might not even ever see it on this side of things. So we go on to verse 5. Here's a great promise in verse 5. It says, You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. So this is a great... God will meet you. God will act on your behalf. He will also meet you in your current situation. So when we're waiting, should we be doing nothing? No. I think you can see there, while we wait, 
there are some things we can be doing. We can rejoice. Rejoicing is an act of faith. I'm giving thanks for something I can't see right now. Not dwelling on my circumstances or what is seen in front of me or us. I'm rejoicing in what I know to be true about God and His faithfulness. We can do righteousness. We can walk to please Him in the situation in my school. It's very hard to be righteous because I like to talk about others behind their back. Right? That's very difficult in a workplace. I'm surrounded by lots and lots of people or complaining. I would, instead of doing right, I would rather complain or grumble about, you know, I don't, this, this doesn't happen my way or that doesn't happen that way. Sometimes God had us, has us right where he wants us to conform us, perfect us. Like Patrick was talking about that maturity last week. That maturity doesn't happen when everything's going well, unfortunately. I wish it did. Typical now, you're right. So yeah, so God is at work. Our job is to do righteousness while we wait. Also to remember. So why is remembering so important? Because it's easy to forget. God has been so faithful to me in my life that really there's no grounds for complaint. Because I can remember if I think about it, if I stop to think, I can think of all the times God has delivered me, set me in a good place, put Christian people around me, Christian family around me. It, it wasn't always like that in my life. And I've seen that as I wait on him, as I put him first, he, he's doing those things so I can remember his faithfulness. It's easy to forget, but he is faithful. Now, another thing we can do is, this actually was quoted by Paul in 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 2.9. But it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. So this is a little addition there, through God's Spirit, and while we wait, this is especially the context of waiting for heaven. While we wait, we can be loving him, loving others. And his spirit reveals, you know, while we wait, that expectant faith of the future. We have an eternal perspective. So the next part, when, when we come to pray and when we're in a situation like we see around us, our culture crumbling, sin rampant, Confession. Now, what's interesting is Isaiah, as we read, he's, he's confessing, he's using the word we, the word we. So he includes himself, and I think that's pretty interesting. So let's read again, verse, part of five, on to verse, uh, into verse seven. You indeed, you are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In, the, in these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have consumed us because of our iniquities. No excuses. 
Well, Lord, if this would have been... No. He lays it all out there. He calls sin what it is. Even our best works and our best efforts compared to the holiness and, and righteousness of God is nothing. It's like filthy rags. I don't come to God on the basis of my righteous works. Like Paul, I count it all as refuse. It's all garbage compared to who God is. I don't come on the basis of my works. I come on the basis of the mercy of God, throwing myself at the mercy of God. Fall on the rock Jesus, lest he fall on you. That's the only way to come to God is the king of heaven. He can melt mountains with his presence. I'm... I'm not going to come to him on the grounds or the basis of my righteous works or my past goodness. I think it's very important to remember in our country, because we're so blessed here, I don't deserve anything. You don't deserve anything. If we want to weigh it out, we deserve hell. That's what we deserve. You and I deserve eternal separation from God. The only reason we're saved is by God's mercy. He cannot look on sin. So my righteousness, the righteousness I have is imputed righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness, as Ephesians 6 says, it's covering me. I'm covered by the blood of Christ. That is, that is the only grounds I can come to him. So when I start to complain, I try to remember, like, I, the fact that I'm alive and breathing, I have a job, that's extra That's more than I deserve. Now, I like this public confession because, you know, I think we could learn something from that in our country. So when we pray for our country, when we repent, when we turn to God, we're broken. We should be broken for the things going on. Not, hey, once those people change over there, then it will be all right. No, I'm guilty. We're guilty. So a brokenness. I see a brokenness in Isaiah 6 if we... Um, I'll just turn there quickly. Isaiah 6, 5. When Isaiah started his ministry, what did he say? What was his prayer? Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So he's recognizing, listen, when God shows up, it should change how I view myself. I'm nothing special. We're nothing special in and of ourselves. No flesh can glory before God's presence. Daniel, who I just mentioned, uh, awesome example, also in Daniel 9, prayed a similar prayer when he found out and discovered, when God started showing him the vision of the future, he went and he repented, and he used the word we as well. There's something special about that. And I think God has a special heart for those who humble themselves in repentance. If you're going to glory, as Jeremiah 9.23 says, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, which we all love, but also judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord." So glory in knowing God. So this is our position. This is where we are. We have only one hope, and that's salvation through Christ. And I think that that salvation 
can mean sanctification, so it's an ongoing work in our lives. It's also if you don't know him, if you haven't come to that place of bowing your knee to him, now is the time. This is, this is where we are without him. And as it says there, we need to be saved. There is a great need. As one uh, Matthew Henry, the commentator, he puts it, he meets his penitent people with a pardon as the father of the prodigal met his returning son. He meets his praying people with an answer of peace while they are yet speaking. So yes, God can't look upon sin, but if we go on to verse 8, his arms are open if we come to him in this way. But you now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. You are our potter. We all are the work of your hand. So God's arms are open, but we can't come on our terms. We do have to recognize our flawed nature, our sin. But he's there ready to receive us. Now, he is a father to those who have, as John 1, 12 through 13 points out, those who receive him. It says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And Pastor Rich has been talking about being born again. So we cannot claim this relationship unless we are born again. We're born of God, born of heaven. We've surrendered. We've received Christ into our lives. It's the only way we can claim this relationship. But in that relationship is great privilege. As the clay, and it goes on, as the clay submits to the potter, so... The, the, the clay has, has to, in a way, trust the potter, right? The potter, the one forming the clay, has the idea and the vision in their mind. The clay, all it has to do is submit and yield. And that's our role in this relationship, a submitting and a yielding and a trusting. So our lives should have a form of surrender, Go on to verse 10. Now, this is a prophecy that's yet to take place. So as Isaiah does sometimes, there's, you know, which is amazing why the, why the Bible is so uh, perfect. It has a dual fulfillment or a future fulfillment, in this case, the future. So this, is, this hasn't happened yet in Isaiah's day. It was going to happen in, in uh, and we'll read in the book of Jeremiah, but... It says, your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple, where our fathers praised you, is burned up with fire, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? So in fact, this was fulfilled. So God did fulfill this prophecy in, at the end of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 52:12 says it talks about uh, it says in the 5th month on the 10th day of the month of the year of king Nebuchadnezzar Nebuzaradan the captain of the guard who served the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem he burned the house of the lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem that is all the houses of the great he burned with fire and all the army of the Chaldeans 
who were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls of Jerusalem all around. So this, in fact, was fulfilled. So when we look around in our society, maybe in our churches even, I, I really can connect with this passage because I feel sad when I look around. I, I, I'm a little concerned. And the problem that we see is sin, erosion of culture, maybe a lack of awareness of God's presence and holiness and power. The remedy is repentance. Acknowledging there's no excuse except to bring it to Him. And he is faithful. He will forgive us of our sin. He'll cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And I, and I like this. It speaks to me about just who God is, how powerful and awesome He is. There is no God like Him. He will act. He knows all things. As we see the prophecy, He knows the future. He knows the past, the beginning and the end. He will judge the nations as he did the people Israel. That's coming in the future. He's all-powerful, but he's also loving. And as our Father, he intervenes on the behalf of his people to fulfill his purposes. He will save and deliver his remnant. There's always a remnant. Those who wait on him, who are looking to him, who are trusting him, who are surrendered to him, no matter what bad stuff happens around us, no matter what judgments come, there's always a remnant. He always has that people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. He delivered them. Like Daniel, he delivered him. What's interesting is when the Babylonian kingdom ended, when the Medes and Persians came in, where was Daniel? He was still there. He was still around. So God brought judgment on the Babylonian people, and Daniel just, he just continued faithfully on all the way through, and he was a, a, an advisor, a counselor to the next nation, thrown in the lion's den, God delivered him. So there's always a remnant. You know, those who put their trust and hope in him, he can deliver us, and he loves us, but it's on his terms. Uh, let's, let's pray. Lord, I can really relate to these verses, and I can really see in the landscape around us, God, a lot of sin, a lot of rebellion. And I pray it would not be so in our church. I pray it would not be so in our hearts where we just open ourselves up to you and pray that you, by your word, by your spirit, would cut us to the heart. Your word can separate even bone from marrow, which is powerful, Lord. It's nothing that any of us can say it's what you've already said and proclaimed in your words. So just work in our hearts through your spirit. Lord, we humble ourselves as a, as a church, as a community, as a, as a people. Lord, we say, come Lord Jesus. We ask your presence in our lives to build maturity. Make us more like you. Forgive us, Lord, of, of complaining, grumbling, being impatient with your work. Lord, we commit ourselves afresh and anew to the work you want to do in each of our lives. As uh, Patrick was talking about, uh, Lord, you're faithful to finish the work that you started, Lord. So help us to yield to that, to be surrendered to you. Lord, we just confess you are great. You are awesome. You deliver your people. You're our Father, and we thank you for that, Lord. 
Without you, we, we can do nothing. So just work in our lives. We, th we thank you for your love, Lord. Help us to love others as you love us and to be bold about your truth. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, thank you guys for coming, listening, and um, God bless you.